Teach me about the Great Lakes. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Welcome back to Teach Me About the Great Lakes, a twice monthly podcast, basically, in which I, a Great Lakes novice, ask people who are smarter and harder working than I am to teach me all about the Great Lakes. My name is Stuart Carlton. I work with Illinois Indiana Sea Grant at Purdue University, and I know a lot about just how wet your feet can get on a day in which it's not supposed to rain, but it rains anyway while you ride your bike into work. But I don't know a lot about the Great Lakes. I'm joined today by Carolyn Foley. Carolyn, how are you? I am doing well. Thank you, Stuart. How are you doing? I guess you... <laughs> I got a wet foot. We had a 930... We're interviewing for our department head, and, and so we had a 930 meeting, so I had to pedal in fast, and it wasn't supposed to rain, but it, it was doing that thing where it's like the air is heavy with water, and your feet are wet, and you're glad you have fenders on your bike to prevent other things from being wet, and it's just generally unpleasant, but it was a nice meeting with the department head candidate, so it, all, it was all better. That's good. Yes. And we are definitely in the weirdness of spring where it's like, it's snowing, it's 70 degrees, it's raining. What's it going oh, to do next? Yeah. It's kind of fun though. I like it. No, last weekend was super. Oh my goodness. Outside, I could have worn shorts, but uh, you know, not everybody has a body made for shorts. Um, and uh, But we had a good time doing the grilling and chilling and all that was good. Um, but actually, normally here, what I do is I insert like a really clever, more or less clever transition um, from our little banter into what our guests will be discussing. I do not have a clever or semi-clever transition here. So I'm just going to... And I did not set you up particularly well, so I apologize. <laughs> I didn't set myself up. So I'll do what I do normally. But best of all is lean into the awkwardness. So I will lean straight into that awkwardness and plumb it down. Um, and we're joined today. We're going to talk about... Um, you know, actually a big thing. So so uh, a big thing that we talk about all the time is contamination in the Great Lakes, right? It's an amazing freshwater resource, but there's some significant issues with it. Um, uh, human-induced issues a lot, although there's other things too. And so um, one of the things we always talk about are different contaminants. And uh, there's a ton of those out there. And, and we love to talk with experts about the different types of contaminants. And so our guest today, she does all kinds of really interesting um, research. Uh, she's an environmental uh, chemist. But you know what? I'll go into all those details in a minute. This is all just a long way of me introducing uh, the one, the only researcher feature theme song. Researcher feature. A feature in which a researcher gonna teach us about the Great Lakes. It always seems like such a good idea when I'm like at home recording this stuff. And then when we have the Zoom on and like I'm looking at the guests and I'm like, oh, this is horrible. This poor person. <laughs> ah, but here we are. The thing is, what are you going to do? It's not like we can not play the music. Yeah. Our guest today is Dr. Uh, Marta Veneer. She is an assistant professor in the School of Public and Environmental Affairs at Indiana University. Uh, our huge rivals, I guess, down south, although I will be honest, I am uh, unfamiliar with the, the outlines of the rivalry because I just don't care. But uh, duly noted. So caveat, etc. Marta, how are you today? Hi, good morning. Hi, Stuart and Carolyn. Thanks for having me. I know we should be rival, but I don't care either. That's what I hear. So I don't know. And Purdue needs to be careful before being too, like, rivalacious, I think, because, you know, <laughs> They stink at most everything. Basketball is pretty good this year. Um, anyway, good. So environmental chemist, I, I don't even actually know what an environmental chemist is. How do you like get into environmental chemistry? Like when you were a kid, did you have the little uh, chemistry set where you mix in acids and bases and make in explosions or, or what was the deal there? No, I actually don't have one of those uh, stories when, uh, when people say, I wanted to be a chemist since I was five years old. Nope, not really. Uh, I went into chemistry. Uh, because I wanted to go into hard science, but I wanted at the same time something that was more tangible than physics or mathematics, or maybe I didn't think I was smart enough to be a physicist. I don't know. 
and then I, I, I went into analytical chemistry because I really wanted to measure chemicals and I was fascinated by how instruments work. And then um, my husband got a job here at Indiana University. We were not married at the time and I decided to follow suit. And things um, actually worked out serendipitously uh, because I ended up working with one of the best uh, environmental chemists in the world, really. I was really lucky, which is uh, Ron Heights. He's um, a guru of mass spectrometry, those fancy instruments that we use to measure chemicals. So everything worked out perfectly, or in other words, I was very lucky. Well, you say we're lucky, but you got to be there to receive the luck, right? Um, and, <laughs> yes. and so, yeah, I, I mean, of course, anytime anybody ends up in a position, you can look back and look at the lucky points, but let's not sell yourself too short there. Yeah. And so I restarted my PhD on this side of the world doing, uh, I work really uh, on the Great Lakes. Uh, and I have to admit, coming from the, uh, I come from Italy, I didn't say this, uh, coming from the other side of the world, um, Ron was surprised that I didn't know much about the Great Lakes. Uh, everybody thinks that everywhere in the world, everybody knows about the Great Lakes. And now I agree, we should all know about the Great Lakes, but we don't. Uh, and so when I actually go to Europe and I give seminars, I, uh, I, tend, I show this slide where I show them that the Great Lakes occupy an area similar to the UK to sort of translate uh, and give the impression of how important they are. So I become very passionate about uh, the Great Lakes um, and in particular about measuring chemicals in the environment. I'm very passionate about that, no matter where they are, uh, not only the Great Lakes. So in terms of those chemicals that you're, you're measuring, um, there's a lot of acronyms that people hear in, um, you know, in, in public media, but then also in scientific papers and things like that, like PCBs or PFOS or PFOAs or PVDEs or things like that. Can you um, help our listeners understand a little bit, like, what do those acronyms mean? Sure. So I always joke that we should buy vowels every once in a while. <laughs> These acronyms are just too much, uh, even for me. And uh, my students and my collaborators know that I am allergic to acronyms. So I try to spell out everything because sometimes you get down to reading these reports and you, you seriously think, let's buy a vowel here because I don't understand what we're talking about. Um, but for chemicals, I'm guilty as charged. We use a lot of acronyms. Uh, I guess it all, probably it all started with PCBs, polychlorinated biphenyls, uh, which are uh, one of the largest group of chemicals that have been um, have started being measured uh, historically. And I have to say that we're still measuring them at levels that are above our detection limits. So we're not done with them quite yet. The other acronym that you mentioned is um, PBDEs, polybrominated diphenyl ethers. There's an, uh, a vowel there at least, so that's easier. Um, and those are um, flame retardants. Uh, and I'm very um, passionate about that. Those are my first love. Uh, those, those are the chemicals that I've uh, done a lot of work for my dissertation and for a good part of my um, research. They are slightly newer than PCBs in the sense that we've started getting to know them really uh, at the beginning of the 2000s or so, sort of. Um, so they are um, young uh, relatives of uh, PCBs, so to speak. 
And then, of course, uh, PFAS, PER, and polyfluoroalkyl substances. Those are the ones that everybody's talking about uh, nowadays um, because it's probably one of the biggest uh, environmental concern uh, after climate change or this, almost at the same level as climate change nowadays. Yeah, I want to talk about those kind of in a little bit of detail. First, though, these so so when you hear when you say the actual names of the chemicals or whatever, you understand why they're all the uh, why all the acronyms exist because it's all just a mouthful. But those those terms like you can identify you can define those or I mean you hear poly blah 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 and you're like oh yeah that makes sense to me right um, yeah those words are meaningful to you as opposed to just for those you know uh, who who aren't fluent in analytical chemists I suppose um, know as much about them. That's interesting. So. Well, let's, so you talk about uh, PBDEs, your first love. So I, we like to go. So let's talk about your first love. I mean, other, of course, and your husband, who is it? I know. Okay. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. We got you. But uh, so, so uh, what's the deal with these? These are flame retardants. Are those things that like people put in clothing or where are these? Or is it like to, you know, in a, in a thing to put out the um, fires and fire extinguishers or where are these used? Yeah. So flame retardants are actually used um they have a good reason, uh, a good purpose. Uh, so they are used to prevent uh, fires or rather the severity of fire once fire catches on. Uh, they are added to a lot of products. So think about uh, your sofa, uh, the foam that is under the so underneath um, the cover. Uh, think about curtains, uh, home insulations. Uh, and all of the electronics uh, that we have in our homes, uh, TVs and computers, laptops, uh, tablets, uh, everything that has a screen and a chip uh, is treated with flame retardants. Uh, the, the backing of carpets. So unfortunately, these chemicals have be become ubiquitous, meaning they are everywhere, uh, both indoors and also outdoors. The, the good news is that because we have uh, accumulated quite a bit of information about their presence in the environment and their uh, negative health effects. So these chemicals, obviously, uh, they're not good for our health uh, and for the environment. And so uh, some of these chemicals have been phased out. So uh, if you have, for example, if you go to Ikea, you buy sofas now or anything that is uh, upholstered, you will not have flame retardants. But this uh, has been the situation since maybe the last uh, three or four years. Before that, if you have an old couch or an old sofa, it's likely treated with flame retardants. And so so is the, I'm guessing, I'm inferring that the problem is, is not so much that they're in there, but they eventually leach out potentially into the environment. And, and yeah. Okay. Imagine that every time you sit on your, your pluff, you uh, plunge on your sofa, you have a puff of air coming out. Oh, yeah. No, that's not that imaginary in our house. Yeah. Uh, and now that I see Carolyn's cat, um, I, I can say that we have actually done a study on cats where we measured flame retardants. And cats have very high levels of flame retardants. And you know why? Because they tend to sit on warm uh, electronics, like on warm uh, stuff and they leak uh, themselves. And so they ingest these flame retardants. Uh, sorry, this was uh, 
need digression, but... Um... No, no, that's good. Actually, so that's so a new thing I want to do is we're going to start having a Twitter poll. So that's going to be the first thing in our new Twitter poll is, did you know that cats have <laughs> uh, high levels of flame retardant? So we'll put that up at uh, twitter.com slash our thing. Uh, teach me, teach, teach Great Lakes. Uh, interesting. Yeah, and, and my cats definitely, yeah, they sit on things and sometimes they chew things and it's like, no, that's a terrible plan. Um, so in terms of, like you mentioned about PVDEs that we're learning more about them. So they've been around for quite a while, right? And it's just sort of over time, science catches up in terms of uh, understanding the, the human health effects and things like that. You talked about machines at the beginning and how you really like those. Um, can you please say um, how you detect them in the environment? Like what types of tests you do and things like that? We generally, uh, we can work with all kinds of sample that can be air, water, soil, fish, you name it, you send it to us and we can uh, test it. And we use um, what we call gas chromatography mass spectrometry, uh, which is a way of uh, measuring chemicals at very low levels. We call them trace levels. Uh, But even though they are very low levels, uh, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be concerned. It means that we need um, a very um, sophisticated and expensive equipment to measure them. But nevertheless, even low levels can have a significant effect because we are exposed continu- continuously and so they add up uh, with time. So, yeah, so in terms of kind of long term exposure, and you mentioned also earlier that this is kind of as big a threat as climate change. But it's kind of like the, the suite of chemicals and the constant exposure. Is that what you would say is kind of where the threat lies, that it's constant and there are so many different chemicals and they have different um, effects? Or is there another way of putting that? So when I was talking about uh, the, a serious environmental concern, I was referring in particular to PFAS. Well, I was going to say we can we can sort of transition to that. I think um, uh, if we want to kind of introduce it broadly and then get into why why it's such a big concern. Um, but if you want to f- sort of put a button on on flame retardants, let's do that uh, first. Yeah, no, I, I wanted to say though uh, that what Carolee was saying about the sheer uh, um, variety and amount of chemicals we are exposed to every day, uh, and the fact that chemicals have been uh, re- produced and released have been steadily increasing with time, uh, that kind of creates a dangerous uh, chemical soup. That's why we call it what we call, um, that uh, it is a concern. The good news is in that term, before we transition to that, is I wanna share is that in, a recent, in the recent uh, United Nations um, meeting, UNIA 5.2, uh, the committee has voted to move forward with creating, creating an intergovernmental panel, pretty much like the IPCC for climate change, but for chemical pollution and chemical waste. And this is great news. There's a lot, a lot more work to do, but at least uh, it's a step towards recognizing that we do have uh, a problem with chemicals that we need to address, and that requires a global effort. Interesting. So let's let's talk um, at, at one of the things that will be one of the main focuses of that global effort. Let's talk about PFAS kind of broadly. First of all, let's pretend that I already forgot what it stands for. Um, just for the, or the listener, maybe they don't remember. They were at a you know at a red light, and not focused. So what what does PFAS stand for again? It's pair and polyfluoroalkyl 
um, chemicals, substances. Okay. And the key here is the part, uh, is the F in PFAS, which is fluorine. And fluorine is a very fascinating chemical element. It's an allergen, pretty much uh, chlorine. So that's the C in PCBs. And bromine, which is the B in PBDEs, those are all halogens. So there's a pattern here among all of these classes of chemicals. And um, in particular, fluorine is probably the most special of all of those, because when you create a bond between chlorine, between fluorine and carbon, you can't break it in nature. So once you release a molecule out there, uh, in the environment that has this bond, it is so strong that it can't be break, broken um, naturally. That's bonkers. <laughs> That's bonkers. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so PFAS is they are, but they're are they related to? I feel like they come from flame retardants or something like that. Or where do they come from? I guess. And how do these? And what do they do? I mean, obviously, we're not making chemicals just for the fun of it. Um, that's or not these types of chemicals just for the fun of it. And and so um. What, uh, like, why, why do we make these and what are they, what are they for? So the, uh, you're right that there was a connection with fire and flame retardants because one of the main uh, uses of, flame, of uh, PFAS, sometimes I get confused between all these groups myself. So uh, the main uses of PFAS uh, was in the uh, foams that the firefighter used to extinguish fires. So think about airports or military bases. And uh, unfortunately, those have become one of the biggest hotspots for uh, PFAS contamination because they were used uh, in high amounts for a very long time. But PFAS were all, are also used in a um, large number of other applications. Whenever they are used, they impart to the item certain characteristics that are desirable. So they make the, the item uh, water resistant, they repel grease and stain. Uh, so think about um, the Scotchgard treatment, you know, when you spray mm. on your clothes because it rains and you don't want to get wet like today. Uh, so those um, treatments are actually, uh, do contain PFAS. The car our carpets are treated with uh, PFAS because we don't want stain to, um, ruin our carpets or hmm. another big items are anti-stick pans so all those nice pans that you don't have to scrub anymore uh, those are treated with PFAS the, from a chemical perspective they were a great invention uh, really they improved uh, the first ads that DuPont released were um, housewives saying my life has improved so much because I have non-stick pans uh, and it is true. It's a great uh, invention, but it also comes with a lot of uh, effects, and we are now paying the price for for that. They leak into the they leach into the environment in various ways, right? And they have this unbreakable bond. Um, but so, what are the exact effects? Like, what what do they do when they? So here I am. Uh, uh, I'm leaking chemicals. I'm into Lake Michigan, right? And so, what what happens as a result of those being in there? Once a chemical is out there, this doesn't apply only to PFAS, applies to a lot of these chemicals, especially when they have these um, allergens in it, chlorine, bromine, fluorine. They enter into the food chain, so they stay in water, and but then uh, they get into fish, and the bigger the fish, uh, the higher the amounts of these chemicals. Uh, and then uh, we, as humans, eat this fish and um, we get the highest levels uh, of these chemicals. And once they are in our body, 
they tend to accumulate. They accumulate in uh, fat or they circulate uh, into our bodies. And so the net result of this is that uh, the, the CDC, the Center for uh, Disease Control that uh, routinely monitors the presence of chemicals in Americans has uh, the, found out that um, every American has detectable level of PFAS in their blood. And do we know the effects of that? So that's cool. Um, not at all cool. And, and so is that just so do we just have a general concern saying this isn't right? Or do we think there might be some method by which, you know, like this causes disease or, or you know, life effects or whatever? Or is it too early to tell? We know uh, enough at this point to know that these chemicals uh, are not good uh, for our health. It's not good to have them in our bodies. And they give um, a wide array of possible uh, negative health effects uh, going from being linked to obesity. Uh, One of the uh, latest studies show that they diminish the effect of um, the, they diminish the immune response of our uh, bodies. And so at the times like these, where we are fighting uh, for during the pandemic, we certainly don't want to know that there's chemicals in our bodies that uh, hamper our response to uh, infectious diseases. But there's other uh, possible effects uh, like diminished um, IQ, neurological factors, because the reality is that we know enough to say that they're bad, but we don't know the full extent of how uh, bad they are for our health. Gosh, when, so when when did this start? When is um like when so when were they first PFAS in particular? Like when did they first started to get introduced into the environment? Uh, their mass mass production started in the seventies, really. Um, and there's this really uh, nice book from Robert Bilot called uh, Exposure. He tells his story as a lawyer. Uh, in his battle against Dupont, which is the the biggest company producing PFAS, um, and it's really uh, interesting to see uh, for how long these have been produced and uh, introduced into the environment, even when the company knew that the effects were uh, were negative. Um, so uh, they've been out for quite quite some time. So in in term yeah so that's really tricky but it so one thing that surprises me a little bit I guess I didn't realize that it was like it didn't start till like the seventies because um, I'm so used to chemicals that uh, you know they've been around since the thirties or whatever um, so that's really interesting the dawn of that better living through chemistry era right yeah yeah, yeah. and then um, okay so we talked a little bit about um, so my cat is still sitting behind me <laughs> um, we talked about how like. A cat might lay on things and then lick themselves and ingest things that way. We talked about like sitting down. You mentioned carpets. So I assume, you know, if we walk around, we potentially track it out there. And then you also mentioned that there are different um, kind of mitigation mechanisms where like you no longer have these materials in your couch if you buy a new couch. Um, We've talked about stuff like that with microbeads too, how, you know, they're not in products anymore. Are there things that people can do short of waiting for like companies or legislators to sort of ban uses of chemicals? Are there things that people can do to sort of um, minimize their exposure to PFAS? Because I guess the other thing too, and I I think we should link to um, 
the list of papers, like I was looking at your your publications before we spoke with you, and you've got it like they're in makeup, they're in like so many different things in different places. So are there things that people can can take, can, steps that people can take to kind of minimize their exposure? What I've learned uh, with time working not only for with PFAS, but also with uh, flavor targets, for example, is that uh, there's a growing um, movement of uh, informed uh, consumers. So uh, consumers are becoming more and more informed and making informed choices. This is what we can do as consumers. Uh, make, make sure that uh, you are aware of what you buy and what you, uh, what you use. At the same time, it is really overwhelming. Even for me, sometimes I, I'm stuck for weeks when I have to buy something and like, what, what do I need to buy? For example, I had to buy ch- uh, car seats for my kids. And I had just published a paper where we had the reported flame retardants on car seats. And I was really, what am I going to do? What am I going to buy? And so even for me, and I know that I have a lot of information, it's really overwhelming. So I can't imagine for uh, people who don't have all of this information. Still, it's good to um, stay on top of these things and be careful with what you buy. At the same time, also, um, there's this interesting process which we call a whack-a-mole game. I don't know if you uh, have uh, have ever played that game where you whack Oh, yeah. So this happens with chemicals. Um, and so you may read, for example, uh, free of BPA, right? There doesn't have any plastics. Unfortunately, most likely that uh, item has BPS, which is a replacement. And even if you're not a chemist, you can tell that it will be a very similar molecule. And so with similar uh, characteristics and similar health effects. And so when one chemical is pushed out, another one comes up, like in the whack-a-mole game, um, which is not necessarily a good uh, cycle because we don't we don't know enough of the new chemical of the new replacement, and after a few years we realize that it's as bad as the chemical it replaced. And so this goes in full circles, and it happened with PFAS as well. So PFOS and PFOA, which we probably have heard, uh, because we start to see uh, on pans and pots uh, advertised the PFAS free. But when you actually read PFAS free, it doesn't mean that it's completely devoid of PFAS. It means that it's uh, without one or two, like PFOS or PFOA, but there will still be some other PFAS in there, just different kinds. Yeah, but that's just the challenge with this whole deal, right? Is that, so, you know, I referred earlier to the better living through chemistry idea of like the mid 20th century, but I mean, it's absolutely true. When you look at what is enabled, thanks to, you know, chemistry, it's just astounding. And all of these quality of life improvements, but so often it comes with your, you're right, um, uh, unknown at, at, bad, at minimum, and then sometimes really deleterious health and, and environmental effects, and, and there's no way to know. But, but it's also like, well, gee whiz, you know, flame retardants, I, don't, I would prefer my couch not set my child on fire. And, and so it's just so complicated. And let me get this straight. I'm a chemist. Uh, I appreciate chemistry. I think chemistry is very important. I'm not against chemistry. I, I want safe chemistry. I want safe chemicals, chemicals that are not going to harm uh, my health. And there are alternatives. Um, there, in every single case that we've been thinking, there are safe alternatives. Uh, for example, in the case of sofas, the way we got away 
without chemicals was to put a uh, barrier between the foam and the fabric that will isolate the foam from the fabric, which is the first uh, thing that catches fire. So that uh, manufacturers can still meet the flammability standards without adding chemicals. So there's always alternatives. It's just a matter of going the extra mile to find these safer alternatives. That's great. Thank you for saying that. I really appreciate that. I really, really appreciated that. Yeah, actually, this whole thing has been uh, really interesting, learning about PFAS and PFOAs and PDBs and all of this whole alphabet, valve-free alphabet soup, I suppose. Um, but that's actually not why we invited you here on Teach Me About the Great Lakes this week. The reason that we invited you here on Teach Me About the Great Lakes is to ask two questions. And the first one is this. If you could choose to have a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, which would you choose? That would be a very easy choice. A donut for breakfast. Donut. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the donut chooser is like it's it's less less gray in the choice of donut than in any other choice. So okay, all right, donut it is. So I have two family members who are at IU, and and one day I will go to visit them. They're students there, neither are chemists. Um, but I will go to get a donut in the morning. And so when I'm in Bloomington, where should I go to get a, a delicious donut? Ooh, I I don't know. Um... My, uh, even though I would choose a donut, um, we are not necessarily uh, eating donuts all that often. And when we do, I, I admit that we go to Dunkin' Donuts. Okay, <laughs> which that's is, fine. Dunkin' Donuts counts. <laughs> which you can, you can do anywhere. So you don't need to come down here. Uh, no, I won't that. go just for Dunkin' Donuts, I'll be honest. Yeah. <laughs> but that's great. Sorry. No, that's great. We had a sandwich person pick Subway. It's all fine. All answers are good. The point is, yeah, it's all good. Great. Okay. Uh, Dunkin' Donuts it is. And the other thing we'd like to do is you talk about how you become passionate about the Great Lakes. And, and that's something I find with myself, too, uh, as I'm learning more about them and realizing what an amazing and, and just irreplaceable resource this is, uh, you know, defined in so many different ways. Um, is there like a special place in the Great Lakes to you that you would like to share with our audience? What, what makes it special? So as I mentioned, I became familiar with the Great Lakes when I moved here almost 20 years ago. Uh, and uh, my, one of my favorite place, places uh, is Lake Michigan. Uh, the, Chicago is the first uh, place I've seen uh, on, uh, on the lakes. And um, I, I still love Chicago a lot. Uh, but I would say that because Lake Michigan is huge, I, I particularly love the Indiana Dunes uh, State Park. Uh, it's an amazing place. Uh, when we went there, uh, by the on the beach, by the lake, it almost uh, made me feel that this was the ocean, the sea that I miss so much. Um, and th that place is just uh, special. It's really unbelievable. That is amazing. Yes, and we'll put a link to that in our and all the other things we mentioned in our show notes at um, teachmeaboutthegreatlakes.com/slash/fifty-two, the number five too, because this is episode fifty-two, Carolyn. Gosh. Well, uh, Dr. Marta Veneer, an assistant professor in the School of Public and Environmental Fair Affairs. Um, environmental Affairs is a different uh, uh, school, I suppose. Um, <laughs> more fun in some ways. But uh, anyway, at Indiana University, thank you so much for coming on and teaching us all about the Great Lakes. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun.
PFAS. Yeah, that was a great conversation. I mean, you hear so many acronyms, so many acronyms, and it was really good at, um, you know, kind of splitting out, okay, here's why people are concerned about PFAS right now and why it's a huge deal and, you know, different things like that. So, yeah. Yeah, no, it is good. And she, I thought, did a really nice job. I guess when you're in the School of Public Environment Affairs, you're used to thinking bigger picture, right? As opposed to like a hardcore chemistry um, uh, kind of department. But uh, yeah, a, a potential all-star, I would say. Potential uh, potential all-star, yeah. And per- per- hardcore chemistry, there's a little bit of me that I'm like, oh, like I took um, physical chemistry for fun, like as an elective in undergrad. And there were like seven people in the class and they kind of went around and they were like, why are you here? I, it's a, I have to take it because I want to go to med school. I have to take it because I'm an engineer. And I was like, I needed an elective. And everyone just looked at me like, <laughs> what? And so it was, it's, it's nice to think back on because Chemistry is really cool. You took chemistry because you needed an elective. There we go. Yep. And they were like, what is wrong with you? (laughs) (laughs) I I like chemistry. So anyway, so what did we learn today, Stuart? Chemistry is literally, was more organic chemistry, but that's the reason I was not an environmental studies major was I found out you had to do organic chemistry, which at my university was a med school weed out class. And I was like, you know, or don't, that's the thing, or you cannot take chemistry. And so I did that. And, um, look how far it's taken me so it's all good uh, anyway what did i learn um well i mean the number one thing i think everybody learned is that cats have unusually high levels of flame retardants in them which is good uh we could have like set up just a cat line right and this is maybe they could do this in the next wildfire season you just stack a bunch of cats on top of oh each my other. goodness come on Stuart. i mean you could <laughs> oh do you have a boo sound uh, i do but why would i play it there after a really Thoughtful idea. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I enjoyed learning about how there's a panel at the UN um, who's going to be addressing this PFAS. So, um, part of my job is uh, running research competitions. And in recent years, we have supported a couple of different projects, and, you know, different people are supporting projects around the Great Lakes to understand where are the PFAS, what kind of effects are there, things like that. Um, so, it's cool to see it's it's alarming to know that it's concerning enough for the UN to be doing a global effort, but it's also comforting to know that um, there's a global effort to try to address this. Right. Too bad we need a global effort. Yeah, we should. Well, we'll go into more detail now once we, I'm sure they'll have some products and stuff like that. So I think that'll be interesting to talk about kind of in future episodes um, with, uh, with Marta or well, probably with Marta. Um, Yeah, I agree. That was great. It was interesting to learn about it and how it's everywhere. I didn't realize it was in the 1970s when all this came about. I just just don't have a good sense of the history. Something we kind of got at a lot in this show is thinking about the way that our relationship with the environment changes over time and has evolved. And, you know, uh, a lot of it from like this more command and control and we can fix things through science and technology to to now I feel like we're in a little bit more of an era where we try to uh, integrate some of what nature does really well into our, our solution. Not always, though. Like she says, you know, one chemical goes away and then another one comes back or one technology uh, we find out is bad for some reason and gets filled, in, you know, and that's true. Um, but, but it is interesting to see how that shifts. Or you think about like management, wildlife management and those sorts of structures and, and things like that. And yeah. So- or I was spending like in my head, neonicotinoids were sp- sparking, right? Because that's something that people used on agricultural fields. And um, they found out that they were problematic for bees, which is a huge issue. But then the same kind of thing, like what she said, uh, the whack-a-mole game where it's like, well, but if you get rid of that one, um, 
what replaces it and what will the yep. effects there be that's yeah it's a very interesting way to think about stuff yeah it's a different it's a different thing to talk about but i worry about that a lot in terms of like how public attention goes with this stuff like i remember bpa so we found out about bpa and it disappeared overnight i mean i mean you know uh, they found out that it had problems in can liners and and very quickly that was gone and it was replaced by this other thing which may be just as and and you know there isn't the same sustained att- uh, a very broad thing i wonder about is our sustained her ability as a populace to sustain attention on something and not get distracted by uh, silliness um but i don't want to talk about that too much mainly because we are fundamentally silly and i worry about our listenership if uh people uh dial back on the silliness so you can see the picture of my cat that we're going to stack on top of each other it's like the end of inside out where it's like i would die for riley i would die for riley I would... anyway if you have, i you will uh, trust you on that uh, i will see inside out at some point but uh, uh as you know my kids can't handle a narrative. <laughs> so we'll get there. We'll get there. All right. Do you want to do the thing or do you want me to do sure, the thing? Sure, I can thing. do it. Teach Me About the Great Lakes is brought to you by the fine people at Illinois Indiana Sea Grant. We encourage you to check out the great work we do, including work in pollution prevention, at iicgrant.org and at ILINC Grant on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media. Teach Me About the Great Lakes is produced by Hope Charters, Carolyn Foley, Megan Gunn, and Rini Miles. Ethan Chitty is our associate producer and fixer. Our super fun podcast artwork is by Joel Davenport. Joel D! The show is edited by the absolutely awesome Quinn Rose. And we encourage you to check her work out at aspiringrobot.com. If you have a question or comment about the show, please email it to teachmeaboutthegreatlakes at gmail.com or leave a message on our hotline at 765-496-IISG. You can also follow the show at Twitter at teachgreatlakes. Thanks for listening and keep grading those lakes. But uh, so grackles, you know these grackles? Do you know about these things? Like really uh, annoying birds? Yes. <laughs> and they sound, but have you ever noticed? They, they are sound very like, loud. Yeah, they sound like evil. Like they are, the, the birds aren't real people. Like I think grackles probably started it because they sound like robots. Have you ever noticed that? Yeah. We we had a cat when um, I was in like high school who was just, he he was hilarious. He would like lie under, I know you, you were going somewhere with your birds aren't real thing, but like the cat was just, would just lie underneath this grackle nest and they would just like berate him and he did not care he's like yeah whatever because he would go hot he he was really good at going up and stealing their babies and so yes we were serenaded with grackle stuff all the time and they were just like so ticked at him he was just like what his name was lambert he was a funny cat anyway he was really good at going up and stealing their babies oh my god um no what i was gonna say so i was out there and they were coming to our house and annoying me or whatever and i realized the appropriate name for them uh because i find their noise to be like disquieting like i'm it's like yeah so i realize it's a decepticon of grackles that's what it is